out of this list on page 17 of your larger catechism on the Ten Commandments. I picked out a few uh, that I thought were um, worth making a little bit of discussion on, and then hopefully we will um, move into the second commandment today as well. So let me go ahead and pray for us. Heavenly Father, we live in a very corrupt world and... It is a challenge to know uh, what's going on in various parts of the world. I thank you for the Christians who dwell in Ukraine and even the Christians who dwell in Russia. And I pray, Father, that you would uh, work in each of them, that they might be protected by your hand that you might preserve the truth and that they might be um, catalysts for good change in that region. And I just pray, Father, that the gospel would continue. I know that you are uh, at work in Ukraine, which has been a, a place that has been devastated for many years now. And I pray for peace in that land, and I pray for the spread of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in this uh, long question, what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? And other than just like being hit with a tsunami, which what it feels like when you read through the whole list, I just want to talk about a couple of the things here that, um, that struck me. And so you're just getting my, um, the ones that I found, uh, worth talking about, um, and hopefully as we talk about each of these, it might, it might help you with what I call the, the Framian understanding of the law, that you always have norm, situation, and heart, uh, and they're always interacting in that way with one another. So let's start with, um, let's start with despair. Uh, number 21 on the list. You guys have that one. Um, it says, Cain's, the verse they give is um, Genesis 4.13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Um, and I'm not sure why the writers of the confession chose Genesis 4.13 when they had at their disposal 2 Corinthians 4.8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, or 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Um, But here's the the question I want to have. Why is it a breach of the first commandment to despair? To have no hope. That's what I think it means by despair, to have no hope. Why is that a breach of the first commandment? So no faith in God, okay? Um, I think it has to be more personal than that. You're right, it's a correct answer, but God is our hope, right? His, uh, how, does he, how does he prevent you 
from coming to complete despair? And, and how does he continue to give you hope even when you are close to total despair? All right, so you put, it, there's another world, okay. He lifts you up. He, it's never, until, until death, there's, it, the, the finality is not, uh, there's always hope, so to speak. So uh, think of the thief on the cross, right? I mean, his life would have thought it had been over, and yet he comes to know Christ in the end, and, and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So even at that situation, um, <clears throat> Hmm. No, I think that's good, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A lot of times when we talk about in our world today, um, when we talk about despair, we kind of, de- we don't usually attack it as a sin to be repented of. And, and again, I think that throughout Scripture, when somebody is despairing, Jesus' approach is not to hit them over the club. That's not the way he would approach it. But why is it that treating despair as a, as a sin is actually very helpful to us? Why is that a good thing? Uh-huh. Uh, and I think once you get into that rut, it's hard to get out of it. Right. I think that's well said. So um, we make ourselves a victim, right? And, and so the word victim is okay. There are people that are victims to all kinds of things, but you're not essentially a victim, if God is in control of all things. And if you can, if, if despair is something that you see as, I don't have to despair, then it's something that you can repent of, and there can be hope out of it, right? If it if it's, doesn't have anything to do with, I need to turn from it and trust in God, then, then there's no hope. I think the hope comes from actually accessing the fact that my despair is wrong, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, now, on the other hand, just be careful. We don't want to be Job's brothers or uh, friends who, who are just like, yeah, you know, put salt on the wound kind of thing, right? We are to actually come alongside people who are in despair and to have compassion for them and to give them hope uh, in Christ. So... Uh, but I just thought, you know, I just wouldn't have picked despair as one of the, the sins forbidden in the first commandment. Um, let's see. Uh, tempting God. That's number 28. Tempting God. <clears throat> what does it mean to tempt God? Jump off the pinnacle of the temple, which is something you all had to, something to deal with right, recently, right? Uh, 
What would it mean for you to tempt God? <laughs> Jesus said he does use the temple you shall not put the Lord your God to the test uh, what does that look like for us to put him to the test the uh things. Uh, I can remember the, the pastor there um, talking about the fact that his son had become deathly ill and that he made a promise to God that he would become a pastor if God would save his son. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered about the integrity of that type of prayer. Uh, I, I think that's entirely wrong, mm-hmm. but I think that's tempting God. Yeah, uh, so it's almost to, to maybe expose the wrongness of that would be to um, say, I am not going to serve you if you don't do this. You see, put it in the negative actually makes it, uh, oh, that, that you should only serve God. I mean, there's been many foxhole conversions throughout. And in fact, if you make that promise and then keep it is a good thing. I'm not saying that, that's, a, that's nice, but... But there is something to the fact of, God, if you will do this, or only if you do this, will I do such and such. Yes. And that he deserves your, your uh, allegiance and obedience, even no matter what. A way I might get it is, um, and I see actually happening as a pastor, as I talk with uh, people, and even in my own struggles with, with sin, um, Lord, if you don't deal with this sin and give me perfect victory now, then what's the point of following you? Well, that's, that's not right. God promises to you that he will take care of your sin and he will give you victory of it. It doesn't necessarily say he's going to do it today perfectly, right? It's, it's, we know that it's not until you get to glory that you'll have perfect freedom from your sin. So, but you can make demands of God. And ask him to prove himself as if he needs to prove himself. Now, that's a, it's a fine line between that and just clinging to his promises. When you're clinging to his promises, he says, I will do this, and you are trusting in that. That's different than demanding of God to do something now in order to prove himself to you. It's, it's an ultimatum, and it, 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 it's intimating that you have power against God, which mm. you don't. Right. That's good. I know we're just dealing with these quickly, but any other comments? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So in that, but see that, that, well, no, no, that's a great, that's, makes the distinction between when God promises something to you, you are to cling to that promise. But you're doing something in obedience to him. He sets the stage. He says, do this. And you're submitting it in faith doing that. That's different than, like, I will only do such and such if you prove to me who you are. So, 
Yeah. Okay, so then moving down to carnal delights and joys. I want to make a comment on that one. Carnal delights and joys. Uh, coming from 2 Timothy 3, 4. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I just want to, in this one, stress that technically the situation and the heart are most important here. There are some pleasures that in themselves are forbidden, but most of the pleasures that we're talking about, what makes a pleasure a carnal pleasure, is not because the pleasure itself is evil, but because the situation is wrong and the heart is wrong. Okay? Um, you know, the easy one to talk about is sex. And, you know, God says, sex is not wrong, the pleasure of sex, but to not do it in the situation of marriage is, is wrong. So he's, uh, the situation and in the heart in this, you could, you could elevate your desire for sex above your desire for God and seeking pleasure in him. So the, it's the heart and the situation that's really being dealt with in the carnal pleasure. I was always appreciative of Dr. Kelly. Uh, as he would say, you know, the, the physical pleasures of the world are good. They are good. It is, we are not people who say kind of a Gnostic mentality that the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. What makes the flesh bad is when you will not submit to God's standard of where he wants it and that you don't put God above the, um, the actual pleasure itself. So you're seekers of pleasure rather than God. You make pleasure your God rather than God. So, and we can even do that in our relationship with God. I, I'm an emotional guy. I love to feel intimacy with God. That's not a bad thing. But it's easy to make the pursuit of that feeling more so than the pursuit of God himself. Understand how that works? And, uh, and that's not healthy either. Um, we're, not just, we're not making an idol out of the feeling. We're trying to be true lovers of God. Um, so when you start understanding these things, you start going, I sin all the time. You know, this is what sin is. I'm, I'm failing short on this all the time because I do want to feel good often more than I really just want God. So. Yeah, we will be able to enjoy the creation not just, but not place the creation over God. Like that, we'll be able to keep that in perfect balance. And that's, you know, um, it's why sufferings often lead you to God in this world. Because then you, you get how oh, you're, it's like it, it helps you to get away from the addiction of just wanting the pleasure of this life and to say, oh, I want God alone, right? Well, that's what's happening in that situation. But, but ultimately, the, where God's taking us is to be able to enjoy God first and foremost and to enjoy all the good gifts of the creation that he gives us. So uh, they're not evil in, of themselves. I think it'd be easy to see carnal delights and pleasures and think, oh, every fleshly desire of the world is evil, and it's just not, not the case. Um, so, 
32, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal. What does that even mean? Corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal. Saul of Tarsus, okay, uh, I'll I'll try to explain that, you tell me. (laughs) Saul of Tarsus, so um, Saul was zealously killing Christians. Uh, He was vigorous, he was passionate, he was doing, actually thought he was doing God's will in doing that. Uh, And so just sheer passion, sheer in the integrity of I believe in my cause is sinful, unless it's found in the truth. So, um, yeah, something our society needs to hear, right? People are, can be very passionate about their cause, and yet often it's not grounded in the truths of Scripture uh, to help them uh, direct that zeal. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's well said, Lee. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, number 37. Praying or giving of any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures. I just bring that up. I mean... Um, I don't know how much interaction you guys have with Catholics. Um, uh, the um, I might go to Gary and ask him for help. Okay, uh, so I think saints, Christians, are to to ask other Christians for help. That's a good thing. Um, but I think the confession is right when you are giving, when you're praying to a saint, um, that that's a sinful thing. And that really does uh, make us at odds with the practice of the Catholic Church. A lot of, a lot of theology of the Catholic Church we may disagree with, but, but this is a practice that we just cannot go with them down. We, we don't pray to saints. We see that as we're to give our prayers to God, and that's a, if you had the God of the universe that you could go to, and you had a saint that you could go to, and you go to the saint, Rather than the God of the universe, that is, uh, that's bemeaning who God is. You know, it's, it's demeaning who God is, I mean to say. So that's why we're opposed to that. I just bring that up. Uh, not that all Catholics are evil, but it, we're trying to help them understand the blindness, as Lee talked about a moment ago, why that zeal, they might even have uh, not even a p- totally bad heart in that, but it's something that's, that is not... Uh, correct, it's not exalting the, the power of God and his perfect, careful, caring heart towards us, uh, that's who we need to be going to. Same thing with uh, Mary, uh, as if Mary is more compassionate than Jesus. No, just go to Jesus. You know, that's the one you go to in your prayers. So, um, All right, 42, charging him foolishly for the evils he inflicts on us. <laughs> and I bring this up because I think this happens a lot in the world that w- in which we live. A lot of people just um, 
well, I, I can't believe God allows such and such to happen. And he's almost charging him with evil and letting the evil happen. And, and how do we reckon that with the fact that God is absolutely sovereign over all things without charging him foolishly for the evils that he inflicts upon us? How do we work that out? we're never so good that we can say that we don't deserve to have that whatever evil is brought upon us good okay any other thoughts knowing so much more than we do, knowing the beginning from the end and knowing how this is all going to turn out into his victory. Okay, so I, I agree with what he just said. How, and I believe that was the, um, the theological starting point of Job's friends. How do we not become Job's friends? Okay. What did, they, what did Job's friends assume about Job? It, they, and they were right that it was God who was over top of that. I mean, Satan was doing it. He was the means, but God was over that. But what did they get wrong about that? Right. That, that God's purpose in the affliction was a, uh, like a retribution for sins that Job had done. And they were wrong. So even while we can accept that no one is good enough to not deserve punishment, we do not know that that, that whatever's happening in that hard trial right there is the result of God being angry with a particular sin. They pass judgment. That's right. It's, it's a, as a pastor, often you just say, I do not know what God is doing in this situation. Yes, relatively innocent. In the, in the situation, not innocent before God, but in the, you know, they're not, not deserving of another ruler to come in and crush them kind of innocence, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the, the last section there, ascribing to the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature. This is one we need to hear immensely. Um, it's, a, it's an ongoing uh, joke in my household with my mom and dad and even with our kids um, I do not believe in luck <laughs> there is no such thing as luck uh, you might say that uh, 
you know, I don't know, if you win in a game of cards or something like that, that there's percentages and, you know, different odds that are, you know, going on. Um, and, it, and it doesn't seem to fit with the odds or the, the pattern. Um, but I always just say, what is luck anyway? Is it a force? Is it, you know, what is luck? Um, and so then if, if you, um, at the same time, I'm not on a crusade to condemn everyone who says good luck. I mean, they just mean, well, be well with you, that kind of thing. Um, but we do want to make sure that, that we do attribute everything that is good to God himself. He is the author of all that is good. And even when we are enabled to do good, we still give him the ultimate credit for that good. Um, so I just think that's really helpful to us. Not robbing glory from God. So, Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. Well said. Yeah. I think this is one of the answers to the question, if God is sovereign, why do we pray? Because, uh, because prayer aligns your heart to attributing all good things in your life to God, rather than happenstance. Hmm. And if you don't pray, it's almost an implied statement that you don't believe God's the one that does it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, just a couple comments. I know uh, I'm kind of ready to go into the second commandment. Uh, remember, as you look through the catechism statement, and it's... Comp- semi-comprehensiveness of it, um, just remember the gospel in the midst of that. Do not uh, just see the command and think that it's all up to you to, uh, to obey the command all the time in every way. We are, um, um, we're just dependent on the gospel. So the other thing that I would say in, in this is the, the, uh, Writers of the catechism, when they give this list, they don't really nuance it. They don't talk about um, degrees of sin. I think they do believe in degrees of sin, but they they don't talk about that. Uh, for instance, like a statement, I would say, you know, if you say somebody says to you, "Good luck," don't just assume that they have no belief in God and they're attributing everything to luck. You know, I mean. They, they don't nuance it. They just say that to attribute things to luck or fortune is wrong, right? I mean, they, so they, they give you the command, but they don't, they don't nuance it a lot, and that's fine as long as we know that you do have to nuance it. I mean, there are some people that you talk to that actually put their hope in luck, you know, um, and so we're, we don't want to do that. We don't want to, that's, that's an evil. We want to acknowledge that, but at the same time, we're not trying to... Uh, say that anyone that just says good luck in a conversation is just as evil as the person that's gambled all their wealth away or something like that. There are levels in that. And the the confession doesn't really make that clear all the time, and I just want to make that, uh, you know, helpful. We've got to keep bringing that up to us. Um, 
Yeah. Is luck a form of idolatry? Uh, we're going to know that when we get to the second commandment, because we're going to know if they, uh, if they, if it's an idol that you can put. No, I mean, yeah, I think it is. I mean, obviously, that's what you shall have no other gods before me. So it's a false god. It's a false something that you trust in that's false. So, yeah, I would agree <clears throat> with that. So, okay. Um, Ken, would you just pass these out to people? I would appreciate that. Um, well... So this is just a quick, in my mind, you, you commit some sin. If you are um, not, if you're in Christ, or if you're not in Christ, God's reaction to that is, is um, his purpose, his intention is very different. So for the, when someone feels suffering, uh, and they are not in Christ, I have this downward spiral, each, each bit of suffering that you experience is a foreshadow of eternal hell. Okay? If you are in Christ, every bit of suffering that you experience is leading you to glory. Uh, it could be the same suffering. You don't know the difference. It's, it's just suffering in the world. But it's, the intent, because there is no condemnation in Christ... God is no longer, the purpose of suffering is not to give you a foreshadow of eternal hell because the reason why you would give a foreshadow of eternal hell is to bring somebody up to the other line, bring them to true, true repentance and faith. Parents don't often realize this. You are never truly giving retribution to your kids. That's never your purpose. You're never doing that. You're always working to sanctify them. You're always working to help them. You use the discipline, which is sometimes painful, not be, your intent is to lead them upward. And that is what God is doing. And so the, the, the way that you think about sin and suffering between a Christian and a non-Christian is, is amazingly different. God is always in the non-Christian calling them to faith and repentance. 
in their suffering. And the fear is if you don't repent and trust in Christ, then it's going to be an eternal hell. Um, but if you're in Christ, you could still experience even more suffering. Dare I say, many of you have experienced far more suffering after becoming a Christian than you did before you were a Christian. And God declares to you in that suffering, I am not condemning you. I love you. And I'm helping you to grow in Christ. Um, so the purpose is very different. Even if you're Corey Ten Boom sitting in a prison, right? He is not condemning you. So retribution always has to do with exacting of perfect judgment on a person. Civil governments try to do that, you know, but as parents, that's not what you do in your home, and that's not what God does with us in the way that he works with us. So always trying to temper suffering in order to help us forward in our sanctification. Does that answer your question at all? Right, and it, he does. So sometimes you can say, I, this is just for God's glory kind of suffering. And, and the difference between, the difference between um, the difference between Holy Spirit and Satan is when the Holy, the Holy Spirit is always intent on bringing you into reconciliation with God. So let's say there are physical sufferings in your life that God is using to get your attention, to bring you to repentance as a Christian, right? The Holy Spirit will give you a clear statement, oh, I'm doing this sin and I need to repent of this sin. Satan, on the other hand, he just wants to say things like, give you this vague generality of, Oh, you're just evil. And, and there's, it, it, he doesn't give you a way out. He loves you to just feel bad about yourself all the time because there's no solution to it. And I think uh, as a pastor, a lot of times I'll be telling people, look, you got this vague sense of guilt. You got this vague sense of unworthiness. That is not from God. God wants you to have a clear sense, oh yeah, I, was, I treated my husband really bad today, so I need to repent of that and I need to, you know, because the Holy Spirit's task is always to bring you back into reconciliation, always to bring you back into fellowship with God. That's his purpose. Satan loves to just keep you feeling terrible about yourself all the time. You're somehow unworthy, but you can't get at what, why, why? That's, that's just Satan. Because uh, he, he loves to just see you held down. He doesn't want to see their joy in your life. So... Um. By the way, it's probably worth saying, you don't have to work, figure that all out by yourself. If you are experiencing ongoing suffering, the book of James makes very clear to you that you should go and talk to your elders. And they can pray over you, they can lay hands on you, and you will be made well. And the point is, is not just always you'll be physically made well, the suffering will be gone. But your elders, who are supposed to be the wisest people in your life, if, as long as you're honest with them, talking about imperfections and failures and different things, they can declare to you the gospel again. 
And they can explain to you that God is not just crushing you in this. And you can feel the blessing of God even while you're still experiencing uh, hardships. Now, many times God will actually remove the hardship completely and he'll heal you. And that's good. That's what James says. But ultimately, the key is are you, do your leaders, those most uh, godly men in your church, are they there uh, to help you not just wrestle with that question, is God angry with me on your own? You get to do that with a community of godly people. And very few people use that in the church, and I wish we would do more of that. So, All right, moving on. Second commandment. The first commandment is do not give your allegiance to anything other than God, which we call idolatry. The second commandment is do not worship the true God using images. God not only cares that you worship him, but that you worship him in the way that he says to worship him. Kevin DeYoung calls it self-willed worship. What do you think he means by that? Self-willed worship. (laughs) However, I want. Let's have somebody read the Question, larger catechism, question 107, uh, which is the second commandment? Who'd like to read that for me? All right, Jim. Which is the second commandment? The second commandment is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is that in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, not serve them. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments." All right, turn with me to Exodus 20. You can have that in front of you, basically as a, you know, a repetition of this. But there are two aspects of the command given. What are the two aspects of the command? Right. Don't, don't make them. Don't worship Okay. Um, to serve 
Yes. In fact, that's the word for worship is serve. And then bow down. All those are related to one another. Yep. Uh, there's a, as usual, there is a narrow definition to this, and there's a broad definition to this. So what's the narrow definition? That's the easy part. <laughs> Golden calves. Uh, we don't have images in our sanctuary that we bow down to of God, right? We just... Um, we don't actually have images that you use in your worship. Um, well, that's the whole one of the big aspects of the Reformation, right? It distinguishes us uh, from the Catholic Church and even the um, the Eastern Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox made the distinction that you didn't want to have a three D image that you crafted, but that you could have an icon, a 2D image uh, that you could use in worship. What's the, what is the, uh, the motivation often for using images? Why do we do that? Focus? Reminders? They appeal to the senses? They can be comforting, but why are they comforting? You can you can hold them, you can touch them. Yes, they're they're, they're it kind of makes it tangible in our level. Yeah, it makes it more real to us. Okay, so, so uh, teaching, that is one of the big uh, um, uh, reasons really throughout the, if you follow the thinking of the Catholic Church, it was, oh, these people don't know how to read, so if we gave them a picture, it would be much easier. So stained glass windows that have like images throughout it that you can just look at that and you can meditate on it. Yep. Yeah. So what you just did is, you that's out here. Um, I think that is the broad application. It, it's not necessarily the, uh, the narrow application, but it is, I think you are, and I, we will have, actually I'm going to have a pretty good discussion today, not today, probably next week, on music, because I do think that it is very much connected with this commandment. Um, so... Yeah, you're not you're not off base in that. Um, 
But it is probably more the, the broad understanding rather than just the narrow. So, yes, Ken? She's giving me the mic. It's kind of interesting that all of those um, options, the senses, uh, the comforting, the tangible things are all s stuff that we can apply to our sacraments, the legitimate sacraments as well. Mm-hmm. That's right. We're going to talk about that God is not inconsiderate to the senses, um, and that's part of the reason why he does give us the sacraments. Um, so that's well said, Ken. Uh, make use of the sacraments themselves. I think being first starting to study this commandment, it definitely brought me to a, a, a lifelong pursuit that we would make better use of the sacraments, that they would be more important to us and more helpful to us on a regular basis. <clears throat> I don't know if I'll ever actually write a book on this, but if I, I, I would like to write a book on the sacraments. That's uh, particularly baptism, but both baptism and communion, uh, because I feel like it's been a lifelong struggle to make the, the sacraments uh, more of what God intends them to be. Um. So what's so wrong with these things? If they have a lot of practical purposes, what's so wrong with them? Okay, so they can... How can something that is... And you just said was there to help you focus on God work to take your focus off God? Okay, so God is a spirit, he's not flesh. Okay, that's, okay, good. I would say that all these physical representations are also man-made. They're like what our human impression is, and they're not necessarily the true impression of God. So it's basically what we see through our eyes which could be super washed out and not, it's just not necessarily the truth. Mm. Um, and so when you veer from like the word and even that, you know, I'm sure some of our translations could be even skewed. It's like mm -hmm. you are taking, you're chipping away from the real God. And with time, it's just going to get worse and worse because it's only our perspective. And like, we just don't have the whole perspective. That, that's okay. Well said. Mm-hmm. Good. Good. Okay, I'm gonna this is I'm I'm right in the um image of God, right? One second, Ken. Uh, I'm right here in the image of God uh, for the sermon today, so that's hot in my mind. But um, who actually is an image of God? <laughs> Us. <laughs> so God already has an image. <laughs> and you're taking images in the creation? 
of all the things in creation, the only part of creation that's made in God's image is you. You are his image. Um, go ahead, Ken. Thunder because it, it, it always... No, you were trying to steal my thunder, Ken. That's the way it works. Uh... I, I thought it was always ironic that God created us in his image. That was right. But then he created us, and then we create images. And uh, then, you know, we worship God, right, the image maker. But when we create our own images, we tend to uh, worship them. And there's a, you know, that's wrong. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I had, I had four reasons that you guys pretty much hit on them. Uh, the invisible, visible, like the spirit versus the, the, the visible. Although John Frame doesn't like that um, because he says God all the time is using theophanies to reveal himself. Uh, the burning bush, you know, there's, there's things that he does that he, um, uh, you know, uses throughout history. Right, God does it, not us. Right, I get it. Uh, the second thing is that, um, you guys didn't mention this, but every image that you have is lifeless. And God is life. He is not static. He is, he is alive and, and powerful and moving. And so to have an image, even if you have an image of Christ on the cross, He's static. He's not doing anything on the cross. He's not speaking to the other guy on, beside him. He's not, um, you know, conquering Satan, casting down demons, you know, whatever. He's, he's lifeless. Uh, even a video of Jesus doing these things is still lifeless and stale. Uh, it's not dynamic and real of who he is. Um, also, I think that the Bible overwhelmingly gives priority to the word over visual scent because the bible wants you to live by faith not by sight so you're constantly having to believe what god says is true about you or about himself or about the world in which you live and not trust your senses so there is a an element of faith that has to uh, be a priority in this um and then you are i think benji already made the creature creation distinction all those are very important but the fact of the matter is, he just says, don't do it. Period. And so even if you didn't understand it, you just have to listen to him. And then what's his motivation? What does he tell you why you shouldn't do this? He is a jealous God. Je okay, now, even something like that, how do you capture that in an image anyway? You know, I can picture the golden calf. Oh, he looks very jealous to me. Um, no, there's concepts about who God is that can only come through the word that he tells us. And he says that he is jealous. Now, I do like this idea. Uh, frame, along with maybe the Catholics, the Catholics kind of squeeze the commandments one and two together, and then they expand the last commandment. But um, I like the idea that, for I am a jealous God, actually being a statement that refers to the first and second commandment. That it's not, he's only jealous because of idols. No, he's jealous of any idolatry and the use of idols. Like, he's jealous of all of that. That seems to make sense to me. Um, how is this a good thing, that our God is jealous? And what does that mean? What do we mean by that? How? 
So, so when you hear jealous, do you hear selfish? Huh? Exclusive. Okay, so let me go a different angle. Uh, give me a bad form of jealousy, a sinful form of jealousy. Insecurity. There you go. There, now we're getting at it. Is God just insecure? Is he up there saying, ah, I don't like it when you do that. It makes me feel bad about myself or something, you know. So the insecurity is good because that's what we see jealousy in our world today, right? Um, other bad forms of jealousy. Yeah. Dominating or domineering, you know. I gotta have all your love. You know, Lynn, you can't have any other friends. You gotta get just be with John at all times when he wants you there. You know, that kind of selfishness, right? Yeah. Coveting. So like God is um That doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. And you want something that doesn't belong to you. That jealousy, okay. Good. Now, okay, so you get the idea of bad jealousy. This is not God, right? <laughs> this is not who he is. But there's, it's, it's, it's a twisted form. So how do we bring, what's good jealousy? God declares himself to be a jealous God. What's a good jealousy? Husband, wife, the husband-wife relationship is an excellent one. Uh, John should not be jealous that Leanne has no other relationships, but he should be very jealous that if she were to give the husband-wife uh, pinnacle relationship to someone other than John, he should be jealous for that, right? So, okay. Okay, God, God is, I'm just going to say central. So like, you are not the central being in the universe. So it's right for you to give glory to God. But God is the central being in the universe. So it doesn't quite work the same way. For him to, for him to not be who he is would be wrong of him. So he is a jealous God saying that it is right for you, as my creation, to give me all worship and to give me all devotion. It would be wrong of God to say, oh, Tanner, I don't really care. Go ahead and give your worship to some other God. That would just be wrong. It's like, that's not who God is. He has to be the central one. So because he is the central being in the universe, the one and only creator, it would be wrong for him to give that glory to any other. Yes, like he is protective. I'm trying to think of it. I think I agree with that. He's protective in that he, he knows that it would be to your detriment if you were to not see him as the central being and to go somewhere else for your, it's going to destroy you. So I don't know if that's what she means. Okay. 
This is, um, this is uh, go back to my college days. I'm sitting in a Hebrew class taught by a Hebrew scholar. And uh, not only think he was a Christian, a group of like six students in there. Most of us were involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. And he was happy that Christians were wanting to learn Hebrew. So he's talking to us in this relationship, and he's got this lisp, and he's an older guy, and, um, you know, first day of class, you're like, who is this? By the end of the class, we loved him to death. But he, um, he says, you Christians just get love wrong. He says, you just don't understand it. You know, he's got this lisp, and we're like, well, what do you mean? We, we understand love. You Jews don't understand love, you know. So he says, this, this, this word has said, you guys interpret it as, as mercy and and uh, unconditional love, he says. And he says, that's not what it means. And uh, he says, hased is a reciprocal love of fidelity. That's the statement, and it's always stuck with me. So like, um, when John gives love to Leanne, and he gives proposes to her, he is, he is declaring to her absolute devotion and love to Leanne. But he's not saying to Leanne, do whatever you want. Go on, I don't care. I don't care if you love me in return. That's not what he wants, right? I mean, he's saying to her, I am giving you this devotion, and there, I want a response. And I think that's true. Yes, yes. He is zealous for our devotion. He has a zeal for us to love him in return. Because the, the key of a, of a marriage, the marriage is the central pinnacle relationship between us and God. That's the picture of it, right? Christ is the groom, we are the bride, we are in that relationship with him. So that's the pinnacle. It's not even the father-son relationship or the father-daughter relationship. Because parents can love children more unilaterally. And that's true, but God is moving us towards a reciprocal love of fidelity. In eternity, you will be loving God in the same way that he is loving you. It will be a reciprocal relationship, which is why he places the Holy Spirit in you. Because the only way that you could love him in the way that he loves you is if his own spirit is in you doing it. Which is why, uh, I think the New Testament verse says that the spirit he placed within you jealously longs for, you know, it's like he's longing to give the devotion back to God that you should have been longing to do that. So um, this idea of jealousy is a good thing placed in its right relationship. In fact, it enables salvation. If he wasn't jealous to bring you to love him in the same way that he loved you, you would not be redeemed. He'd just leave you in your wickedness. Um, He has made you in his image so that there would be this reciprocal love of faithfulness. Now, then he would back up and he'd say, of course, this love includes mercy. It includes unconditional acts of love that God gave. I mean, it includes all that, but just don't miss that it's this reciprocal love of fidelity. And, and I've, I've gone to all my Old Testament professors and asked them the same question, is this true? Is, did my Jewish professor get that wrong? And they said, no, that's right. That's the, that's the biblical picture of said. Uh, one commentator says, a God who was not jealous for the reciprocal commitment of God's people would be as contemptible as a husband who didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him. 
next time. Father, thank you so much for this class, and I don't know, Lord, um, we are wrestling to try to understand who you are, and I am glad that your word tells me. Um, I'm glad that you are a faithful God who desires to bring me into a loving relationship with you. I pray for us as your people that we would be less judgmental and that we would be more uh, in awe of who you are. Lord, help us to not worship you by images, uh, whether they be mental ones or literal ones. Help us to not make idols. Help us to give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Dead. Dead. Yeah.